You're listening to the podcast of The Capital Church. The Capital Church is a local church in Columbus, Ohio, that exists to see more people become more like Jesus in Columbus and The Ohio State University. For more information on our church, please visit us at cptlchurch.com or follow us on social media at cptlchurch. Thanks so much for joining us. You may be seated. If you've been here a while, you may notice that we have a few people that are normally up on stage that aren't here today. Uh, Kyle, our uh, worship pastor, is uh, out in Indiana, and uh, he is helping his brother-in-law with a retreat this weekend. Uh, Luke, who is our lead pastor, is ironically also in Indiana, different part of Indiana, at a uh, sister church preaching this morning. And uh, we are a church that uh, feels very privileged to have... uh, highly skilled people like those two here and feel like uh, we need to be willing to share them on occasion uh, to places that don't experience that. But also, I want to uh, point out, and it gives me an opportunity to do that, how great uh, the people are that God has provided for us when they're not here. And uh, I just, uh, I'm amazed. I I'm somebody who grew up in a faith tradition where you were very serious and somber, always in church. And I can remember as a young person feeling deeply emotions that somehow I just didn't feel, I didn't know how to express them. And it wasn't that what we were singing uh, from a content perspective wasn't great stuff, I just didn't... uh, have an ability in that context. And I say to Kyle often, he, Kyle's actually a guy who God used many years ago when he came into my life uh, to change me in worship. The first time I ever held my hands in the air, uh, Kyle was leading. It was Easter Sunday, and I was visiting uh, he and my son in Iowa. And I went to the church that actually sent us to plant this church. And uh, Kyle came up to me afterwards because he knew that me in that transition, trying to figure out what am I going to allow myself to do? Are my ancestors going to roll over in their grave as my hands start to uh, slowly come up? So I'm, I'm so, I love being at this church. I love the opportunities to worship with you. Uh, For 20 years before I came here, I taught at a university, and one of the things I did to begin every class was ask students if they had any questions. And there were times where they would ask me an academic question, not very many, and even fewer, where they would ask me a question about the class. Most of the time, those questions were about uh, other issues than academics. And... um, One of those students, one time, was uh, in a dorm with one of my sons who was uh, going to the university at that time. And he came up to my son and said, hey, I've got a class today with your uh, dad. What's a question I can ask him? And he said, ask him about Louis Zamperini and he will talk the entire class. 
He was like, you may want to put that in your pocket if you're not ready for a presentation or something. Start the class by asking about Louis Zamperini, and my dad will just talk forever about Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini is the subject of a book, and, and then a movie came out called Unbroken. He was a track star that competed in the 1936 Olympics. It's amazing to me how many significant, significant cultural stories came out of the Olympics of 1936 in Berlin. Louis Zamperini is one of those. He joined the Navy and uh, was on a actually a rescue mission for a downed plane, and his plane crashed. He floated for 47 days before they ma made land on an island in the Pacific, and eventually they discovered that that uh, island was a stronghold for the Japanese army, and he spent the next uh, over two years in a uh, concentration camp. And after the war, his life began to spiral downward. In fact, I read that book, Unbroken, uh, on vacation, and Bonnie can tell you that we're sitting one night, uh, just a quiet night, reading, and all of a sudden, I've been telling her about how amazing this book was. I just set the book down with disgust, and she said, what's the matter? And I said, if this is how this story ends, I wish I had never read the book. He's drinking, his marriage is falling apart, and uh, he eventually, uh, his wife has decided she can't take this anymore, and that's about the time where I'm thinking, oh my word, it, it, we, it didn't seem like we had very many pages left in the book. And then about 15 minutes she looked over and there were tears coming down my face and she's like, what in the world happened in the book in 10 minutes? And what happened was his wife had gone to a Billy Graham crusade one night and uh, had decided to become a follower of Jesus and came home and begged him to go with her. And finally he said to her in anger, okay, here's the deal, I'll go with you but uh, you have promised me that I'll go this one time and I will never go again. You will never ask me to go again. There will be no pressure to go. She agreed to that and he said, here's the other thing, that uh, as soon as he's done preaching, I'm out of there. I'm not staying for any of this uh, go forward stuff. I'm gone and she agreed to it. And he came to the Billy Graham uh, meeting that night and Billy Graham stopped singing and he got out and he started walking down the aisle, and to his horror, Billy Graham said, if you want to leave while I'm preaching, you feel free to leave, but when I'm giving an invitation, nobody leaves. Sir, sit down. And he said it ticked him off, and he started walking faster and more dramatically to the end, and he said that he began to remember in his mind conversations he had had with God in that raft he was floating in for those 47 days. And one of the things he had said to God, if you allow me to get out of this, I'll give my life to you. And said so there was a moment in time where he turned and walked up and trusted Christ. Now in the book, that's where the book ended because the author wasn't concerned much about that. But a couple of years later, in October of 1950, he actually made a trip to Japan and went to the prison where all of the uh, 
uh, war criminals, the men who had tortured him for two and a half years in two different concentration camps. He went to visit those men because he wanted an opportunity to go before them and tell them what Jesus Christ had done in his life and how he'd been transformed and then said to them, in light of what Christ has done for me, I wanted to come over here and tell you that I forgive you. I have always loved people's stories. I love true stories. I, I don't have anything against novels and all that stuff. They're wonderful. But I have always, if I'm going to invest time, I love to read uh, stories about, you know, the human spirit, the human capacity. I love to read survival stories. I love to read stories of men and women who have done something to really change culture. I love to talk to people and hear their stories. Sometimes people ask me what... You know, what are some of my uh, hobbies? And I don't know how to say one of my hobbies is people's stories. I met a couple recently where I said, uh, where are you guys from? And he was from Maine, as I remember, and she was from California. And I'm like, how in the world does a guy from Maine and a girl from California meet? I got to hear how this thing happened. And then they meet, get married, and now they're living in Columbus, Ohio. I just find that stuff incredibly fascinating. And part of the reason I do is because I think you would all agree with me that stories influence people. Stories change lives. Stories fix marriages. Stories give confidence. Stories inspire change. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus loved stories. And I believe God understood the power of story, so our Bible is filled with all kinds of stories. And we're currently in a sermon series we've entitled Leveraging Limitations. And what we're doing is we uh, are, are talking about the fact that all of us have a story, but unfortunately many of us can call to mind the things in our lives that make us feel like we don't have a story to tell or at least we don't want people to know what our story is. There's things we wish we could change. There's things we could wish we could go back. And those things cause us to feel shame and be embarrassed and try to make sure we steer conversations away from the opportunity of maybe what I feel uh, limits me from being exposed. But what if, what if our limitations weren't actually limitations? And what if we perceive to be a limitation could actually be leveraged in a way that it added value to other people's lives around us? And this series is about that. The first week, we looked at how do I leverage when I discover that I don't have the power to do anything about my situation? I cannot change it. I may be a father who wants desperately for, for God to do something for my child, to heal my child or something to happen, but I don't have at all any power to do that. And we were challenged that what if I could leverage that helplessness as an opportunity to go to an almighty God and ask him to work in my behalf. And last week, Harrison mentioned this. What if we leveraged our sinfulness by recognizing in worship 
that it's an opportunity for me to publicly declare the work that God has done in my life. It's my way of saying thank you for taking my brokenness, my sinfulness, and making a means, a way for me to be forgiven. And today, we're going to look at a conversation Jesus had with a woman, and what we're going to see is how her story was an invitation, really, for others to be able to see the grace of God, to be able to see that what God had done in her life, he could do in other people's lives. Before the conversation, she feels like she's an outsider. She feels like she has nothing to offer. And Jesus wants her to know that he does not see her that way. And while it may be true that others see her that way, Jesus wanted her to know, I do not see you that way. So if you have a hard copy of the Bible or you have it on your device and want to follow along, we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, as one of, all of us once were, that's sort of in the back third of your Bible. There's uh, what is called the Gospels. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John. If you don't have either of those, or you have those, but you want to keep your Bible closed and just listen, I am going to read uh, the portion of Scripture that we're going to uh, talk about. But as you're turning there and finding it, let me try to help you understand how important this story is. John, who wrote about this story, is, was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And the book of John is his attempt to write an account of all that happened while he spent time with Jesus. Now, John reveals to us at the end of his book that one of the great challenges he had when he sat down to write the account is how much there was to write about. In fact, in John chapter 20, he talks about this. When he says this, he says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, he says, there was so much that happened that even if I tried to detail and talk about everything that happened, it would be impossible. We couldn't even have enough books. So you would understand that any story that finds its way into the book of John is at least a story that John deems to be strategically important. Now, we have some chapters, some records of stories, and all we get is a few details. In this particular case, he devotes almost an entire chapter, 42 verses. We get all kinds of details in this story, which to me clearly communicates that to John, of all the things that happened and the time he spent with Jesus, this is one of the ones that he wanted to make sure was recorded. But it was also very important to Jesus. If you're at John chapter 4, let me Follow along with me as, or listen as I read John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. 
Now what happens is Jesus' ministry is creating some conflict, and so what Jesus decides is rather than stir up unnecessary conflict, let's just leave and we'll make our way to Galilee. But John, when he talks about how this decision was made, he uses the phrase, Jesus had to go. Now why choose that phrase to describe how the decision was made? You're writing an account... The detail is that we were in Judea, we're heading back to Galilee, but he makes sure to that we understand that Jesus, the way he describes it, had to go through Samaria. Well, this phrase, interestingly, refers to some compulsion other than convenience. What he was saying is, yes, if, a, if he was going to travel the most convenient route, even though Jewish people did not take that route because it would require them to go through Samaria, which they wanted, didn't want to do. But what he's trying to point out is Jesus didn't pick this way because it was the most convenient route. There was something else in play here that Jesus said to these guys, we got to go back to Judea and we have to go through Samaria. It's a term to express, not to express obligation, but speaks of a necessity. He doesn't feel any obligation to do this, but there's something about this route that causes him to say, I have to go. It's necessary. It's important to me. We have to go this way. Something about going this route made it a necessity for Jesus. Secondly, we know it was important to Jesus because he was willing to go against the racism of this period. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as the half-breed products of what they considered ethnic sellout. In other words, the uh, Syrian kings sent non-Jews into Palestine in the northern kingdom and ultimately what happened as these different ethnic groups are living together, Jewish people began to intermarry with other uh, groups of ethnicity and also began to stop uh, worshiping God the way they had and start intermingling all other kinds of religions. And the offspring of this in the Jewish way of thinking were uh, what they would have called half-breeds. In fact, it was so perverse and I might say so ugly and disgusting that religious people in these crowds would pray and ask God to ignore the prayers of Samaritans and not actually forgive their sins. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, which was sort of like the Jewish cultural handbook of that day, it said that it was okay to lie to people like Samaritans because it isn't a sin, and I say this in quotations, it says, because it's not a sin to lie to animals. But this story is important because Jesus is saying, that's not how I feel. That's not where I'm at. I'm not there. And I am willing to stand against what may be a reality of a culture and make it clear that that's not me. I'm not going to allow that to mark me in any way, and I want to communicate clearly to my followers that that is unacceptable, disgusting way to view people. But 
Beyond those two, a third reason I think we can see that it's important to Jesus is that he was also willing within this root and this conversation we're going to look at to go against the cultural rules of this period. I mentioned the racism. And so Jesus is making sure that he's going to be talking to a Samaritan, which wasn't normally done. He's going to make that a priority. He's literally saying, I have to go to Samaria because there's going to be an individual at a particular well, and I'm going to be at that well, and I need to have this conversation with them, and they're a Samaritan, and that's okay with me. But beyond that, a Jewish rabbi would have never had a conversation with a woman in public. That would have been unacceptable. And as I mentioned, this woman ultimately offers him a drink from a cup, and he's willing to drink this, a cup from a Samaritan, while he talks alone with a woman, which as we read through the story, you're going to understand that uh, this was not any ordinary woman. This was a woman who, being seen, having a private conversation with her in public, would have come with some baggage. And Jesus is saying, I don't care about all the cultural things. I don't care about all the racist things. I want to make a statement, and I want to demonstrate something to this woman, and I want to demonstrate something to, for all of us in all of human history. And this conversation was so important to Jesus that he went to great lengths to get to where she was, to get to a certain point in time where they would be alone together so that the two of them could have a conversation. Now, why is this encounter so important? Well, let me read for you the entire conversation, and I'm going to read you a uh, significant amount of scripture. And what I want to do is I want to read this story to you, this account, and then I want to make some observations. So follow along with me or listen. Here's what it says. It says, eventually he, that's Jesus, came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If he only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and the well was very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. 
Sir, this woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it, it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, let me give you some observations. First, I want us to notice what we learn about this woman. She's coming to the well early in the morning. I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, you typically came to get water at a well in this stage in the early morning and the evening. You didn't come at the hottest part of the day. And this woman is coming at the hardest part of the day when it's going to be most inconvenient and the hardest time you can possibly get water. So we get a little glimpse of her view of herself is that I'm willing to go through that because what I know is if I go to the well, then nobody else will be there. It speaks to the shame, shame that she obviously felt. Her story, understandably, causes her to feel shame, and I'm sure she sensed the shame in people's eyes and responses. They all had to know, there's the woman who's been married five times, and the woman, the husband, he's, she's, I mean, the person she's now with, she isn't even married to. But she doesn't know Jesus, so I'm assuming that she probably thinks, okay, she can have some degree of conversation because he doesn't know her, so he can't uh, respond to her with the same degree of disgust and shame. We know she does feel shame because in the conversation, she talked to him about where to do the sacrifices and said, now the Jews tell me if I want to do a sacrifice to take care of the sin I've committed, I've got to go to Jerusalem, but uh, we go over here. Where do I go? This is a woman who, to use the terminology we've been using in this series, saw great limitations in her life. But notice what we learn about Jesus. Jesus knew the longings of her heart and the perception she had of her life, and it's why he said, I've got to go this way because I need to have a conversation with a very specific, particular woman. Jesus' response, even when he gets all the details of her life, notice that he doesn't ask questions to force her to tell those details. He does it in a way that they come out, but she doesn't ever have to tell it. Again, communicating his love and his sensitivity. He refers to her as dear woman. I wonder how many times she had heard that particular term to describe her. 
especially by a male, especially by a Jewish male who treats her with dignity, who treats her with love, who treats her with compassion, and even communicates that in the way that he addresses her. And Jesus begins to change her view of her sin and her feeling shame towards herself and others and her helplessness towards God. This woman so moves the heart of Jesus that he chooses in this moment to this woman reveal something that up to this point in his earthly ministry he had never revealed. And that was he said to her and therefore declared to the world through her, I am the Messiah. And you are so significant to me. And your story is so significant to me. And the shame and the guilt that you feel because of your story and the way people treat you. I want you to know that you are so valuable to me that I made sure that we were going to have this conversation. And by the way, I want you to be the first person to ever hear me say, I want you to know that person that you're looking for and hoping can come and that person who can forgive you and take away your shame and guilt I'm that person but notice how everything changes in what we learn about her story her story felt like a limitation and that's why she's alone but her story changes from being a limitation to actually becoming a weapon she goes back to the same people who made her feel ashamed and alone. But this time, she sees her story very differently. And she goes back to the people who know the story and says to them, come, listen to what she says. John chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 28. It says, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Think about that statement. She did, she's not proud of what she's ever done. That's what brings her shame, and yet she goes to a group of people and says, I just met a guy who told me everything. I just met a guy who told me he knew about my five husbands. He knew about the relationship that I'm living in right now. He knew about all those things. And then she says, could this be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Skip to verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. They begged him to stay in their village when they came out to see him, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message. And then listen to the change. A town that shamed this woman a town that constantly reminded her of their failures and their view of who she was. After encountering Jesus, after hearing her story and what Jesus had done to redeem her story, it says, then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. And lastly, I want you to, us to be reminded of what it tells us about our stories. 
It tells us that when Jesus gets a hold of our stories, it stops being about what we're afraid to share. It stops being about the guilt and shame. It stops being about the embarrassment. That opportunity where you're with somebody and you see something in their face and you wonder, do they know? Have they heard? And instead of Jesus, when gets a hold of it, instead of it becoming that, it becomes to you the most lethal weapon in the battle to help others come to recognize and see the grace of God that's available to them. It's about, I want my story and the forgiveness and redemption that's come to me, I want to communicate that to people. And whether you have allowed your story to cause you to feel like you are an outcast or feel shame and guilt, God has designed your story to be the very message he wants communicated to the people in your world. It's not God that causes shame and guilt. It's, it's the enemy who doesn't want that message to get out. And you know why her story, the change in her story is possible and why it's possible for all of us? Because the truth is that this can be true of everybody in this room because Jesus Christ came to the earth, he died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, and then he was raised from the dead to demonstrate that the payment for your sin had been accepted, and now you have the freedom and opportunity to be made new. No matter the shame you feel due to your story, like this woman, you and I can leverage our broken stories for other broken stories to also be redeemed. And it gives me and you an opportunity for us to view our stories as a means to help other people believe and be willing to come to the conclusion that the grace of God that has taken hold of my story can take hold of your story. So what have you seen as a limitation in your life? A past sin? Maybe a failed relationship? Maybe a poor decision? I'm very confident. I've lived long enough and talked to enough people to know that in a room this size, I am positive that there are people scattered throughout this that have allowed the shame of their past to keep them from engaging with people really in any form, let alone as it relates to the grace of God. And I have prayed hard that God would allow me to share this with you in a way that you would consider today as the day to begin allowing what Jesus did for this woman to do for you. 
And maybe you've never had that happen before, and maybe today could be the day that just like this woman, because you see, I would say that Jesus one day said, I have to go through Samaria, and he wanted to make sure in a moment in time he had a conversation with a very particular woman. I would say without you knowing it, the same thing is true, that God has controlled the events of all of our lives to bring every one of us into this particular room today to hear this particular message today. Either so that some of you who have never considered that a God would love you so much that he'd pay the price for your sin, that he would rise again from the dead to demonstrate that that payment is available and can be applied and you can be forgiven, but make sure that you would be here to hear that message. And maybe for others of us who are followers of Jesus, maybe today becomes the day where we begin to realize that God not only just forgave me, and that's great, but my story is a story that other people need to hear. And I will be willing to wade into that uncomfortable territory to let other people know that what has once shamed me and kept me quiet is the very message that God once communicated to the world. Let me pray with you. Father, Thank you for this passage. Thank you for allowing the decision to be made that on this particular Sunday, this would be a passage that I would read and I would think through to remind me of your grace in my life. To remind me that I am also an individual who's been saved and the grace that's been applied to me is a story that people need to hear. I am sure, Father, and, and you know I've talked to you about this, that there are people in this room who are like this woman who have lived a long time in their life, carrying the guilt and the shame and trying to figure out how to navigate life and how to navigate relationships and how to navigate conversations in a way that I don't have to talk about this, I don't have to share this, nobody needs to know about this. And I prayed that today you by your spirit would communicate to them that today is the day like this woman that they sit in a place and they hear from God and God says, I love you so much that I've made sure that you could hear the message today that Jesus Christ paid the price. Your sin, the guilt, and the shame can all be taken away of. And even beyond that, we can now get up and you can play a role in inviting others into this as well. And I pray that today that would happen. And as we sing, Father, as we worship here in a moment, as we watch baptism, may we rejoice that like this woman, a whole new group of people are declaring to the world, I have a story. And the story isn't about my past. The story isn't about my guilt. The story isn't about my shame. It's about the forgiveness that God has granted to me. In Jesus' name, amen.